This morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17. Now Peter has just begun a large section talking about really what it is to do good in the midst of difficult situations. And so he talks about kind of this political realm. He's going to talk about slaves to masters and then wives to unbelieving husbands. And so he's kind of moving through and developing. And this is the first section we come to. But I think it's incredibly instructive and helpful for us to start in one place this morning. And just because I, as I prayed about it this, this week, and God, what would you have us to focus on? How would you have us to look at this? One passage kept coming to me over and again. Isaiah chapter 9. You see, all hope, all hope for politics doesn't rest on electing uh, a Republican or, or a Democrat, depending on kind of where you fall in that. It's not finding somebody whose heart kind of resonates with you. I like this policy. I don't like that policy. I wish they would do away with the free trade agreement. I wish they'd move in this way. I wish they were stronger on life. I wish they were stronger on this. Every person we vote for outside of Jesus is ultimately going to fail us in some way. If you don't understand that, like you've not been paying attention. You're not reading your Bible well, and you've not been scrutinizing those people that we're watching, okay? Everybody outside of Jesus is ultimately going to disappoint. Isaiah 9-6, Isaiah's writing uh, roughly five 600 years prior to Jesus, and look what he says. He says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and, on, on, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is bringing a kingdom which knows no end, whose ruler we would vote for in every primary, in every open election, and we would ride in if he wasn't the candidate on the ballot, Right? Jesus is what Christians are ultimately uh, directing for. So really, in, in some sense, in this time, and as, as we get closer to it, our rhetoric's going to speed up, and we're going to address this more directly. But understand this, Christian. You're, all the hand-wringing and, and posting on Facebook about how the world's coming to an end, and, and if you arrange the letters this way, it spells out 666 in, in Hebraic text. And if you line the cuneiform letters up just so, it does this. You poke yourself in the right eye and stand on your right leg and lean around the corner. You can just see the, through the blood moon coming down that all of it's going to come to an end. That sounds painful. Don't do any of that. Right? Our future is always directed towards Jesus. We're going to have rulers, we're going to have presidents that we like more, we resonate with more, we like their policies, and we're going to have some that are just awful. Uh, this morning I was reading in a, in a 1950s Baptist periodical talking about the secularization of America and how it was such a terrible thing and, and we need to fight for religious liberties. This is written in 1957. Things are always headed in a certain direction, but we recognize in the end, Jesus always wins. Amen? We've got to understand that before we get into any of this, or else we invest too much of ourselves in the hope that, that we will see this thing come out. If we play this just right and we vote for the right person at the right time, perhaps we can bring back to this idyllic form of Mayberry in America. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Let's look at 2, 13 through 17. The Christian's position before government. Be subject 
you could really stop there, but he gives us a lot more of an explanation. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He goes on, he says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then the ESV renders this one sentence in the Greek as four separate. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. And the Christian living today has this, this amazing opportunity to display the gospel and let it be so incredibly evident and clear to a world around us because it's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that, that a gospel is, is, is a given, understood thing by those we encounter, even here in Greenville, Texas. And so for the Christian in this season, it's an opportunity on every different platform you engage, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you put a billboard out, you write something on your car and you drive around and your car says, you know, vote for whoever. Every way that you communicate, you're ultimately communicating what you believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and can I tell you, can I tell you that this is an amazing opportunity for you to display the gospel. If there's a decrease in civility and, and just, just kind of basic kindness and morality, and it's happening in kind of both of the large political parties for the Christian, for the average Jack or Jill sitting in every pew, engaging in Walmart. This is an opportunity to bring people down a level and just to be kind. And in your extension of kindness, there is a manifestation of the gospel. We have to see this. You see, if, if you elect the person that you want to be in office, but you haven't been true to the gospel and getting them there, you have failed. That's not a victory, friend. That is an absolute failure. When you pit the gospel of Jesus Christ versus getting your candidate into office, you've already lost. See, the Christian begins with submission to the gospel. And in their submission to the gospel, then they might seek to be a part of the political process. We can never have it backwards. It always has to be within this step. And on occasion, that will mean absolutely your candidate fails to be elected. It means your candidate fails to be elected. You see, say we entered into a political process and we have Paul Pot, the mastermind of genocide, and we have Adolf Hitler. And we look at it and we say, well, I can't vote for any of these people, right? And so for me, in this situation, we're having to write in somebody. Because you're not going to support Hitler, you're not going to support Paul Pot. The difficult question for the Christian in this electoral season is at what point does the gospel begin to influence your decisions at the ballot to the point where you're willing to lose to represent the gospel? That's not a question we're going to answer this morning. But it's absolutely the question before us. How willing are you to stand for the gospel? How willing are you? At what point does your conviction about the gospel necessitate that you would rather lose then go with something that is opposed to the gospel. That's a question for the next few months that we need to wrestle with. 
But while we're wrestling with that, and while I've angered a significant portion of you, <laughs> let's just go ahead and pretend like a, you can listen to that again. First thing he says is be subject. Now, Peter writes in a day and a time where they didn't have elected officials reigning in office. They couldn't look out and say, look, this is our fault. We elected Claudius. We elected Nero to serve over us. They did not have a voice in the political system outside of, for many of them, crying out in the midst of persecution. They had no voice. Recognize this. They had no voice in the political system, and his word to them was be subject. He's calling them to obedience, even at the hand of persecution. This is a difficult thing for us. Now, something that changes for us is in the midst of being subject, we have to be involved. We can't just passively sit by and let things go. And so Peter is not advocating that the Christians should not be involved in the political process. If anything, he's saying you need to be more involved. He's describing what it is for them in the midst of a first century context to be a good citizen in the midst of a Roman Empire. Within the United States of America, you cannot be, listen to me in this, you cannot be a good citizen and not vote. You cannot be a good citizen and not vote. You just absolutely can't be. Because it is part of our identity as citizens in this country to be a part of the process. You have a choice. You have a choice to elect people. And so part of what it is for you as an American to be subject is to enter the process. Not just to sit back and say, oh, hey, I don't know what to do. Oy vey, I don't know what to do. I don't know who I should vote for. I don't know how these things work. If you want to be a good citizen in Rome, you be subject. If you want to be a good citizen in America, you vote. And then you complain later. <laughs> Look why he says this. Now, Romans 13, and you're going to go into these to the life groups. Romans 13 really spells out a lot more of God's involvement. Peter's not looking at that in this. But he says, be subject. Why? It is for the Lord's sake. Your involvement in the political process is ultimately a reflection about what you think of God. Your voting, your voting record, your involvement, either Republican or the Democrat or the Libertarian or the Green Party or kind of wherever, whatever tickles your fancy, your representation in that should ultimately be a reflection of your obedience before God. So I believe that each one of us, at the end of the day, will have to give a response as to how we decided, how we chose different things, right? And so in, in a very real sense, Christian, as you sit here today, I'm firmly convinced of this, that at some point God will say, why did you vote for this person instead of that person? Every decision we make should be held in subjection to our view of the gospel, Every decision we make in entering a process, the words we choose, how we describe those we disagree with, every single one of those we're going to have to give an account for. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, which candidate we endorse, when and how. We cannot be pragmatists in this pursuit because we recognize that our subjection is to the Lord's sake. And then he extends it, he says, to every human institution. So he's going to go in and spill that out and describe what that looks like. But lest you say, well, I can be in submission to the government in this way, but not in this way. And you're going through and you're picking and choosing those things you like and those things you dislike. And, well, I really want to endorse this, but I don't want to endorse that. Peter cuts you off. He heads you off right there. He says, every human institution. Now, we have a, a habit of making our preferences scriptural. 
We have a habit of finding those things like economic policy and saying, this is good, righteous, and true, but everything else is sinful, awful, and terrible. When he comes to this, he is almost in, in, in seeing through the sinful direction and trajectory of our hearts. You see, the, the catch-all in this, if the government were to issue mandates, were to pass laws that were you to follow them, they would be sinful. You can't follow them. You can't. You have to suffer. Perhaps you have to go to jail. Perhaps you have to lose your home. Perhaps you have to lose your life. Hear me on this. If our obedience is ultimately for the sake and for the goodness of God, then how in the world could we disobey him for his good? Well, let's be in that case like, like Peter in Acts 5, 29, when they command him not to speak, and he says, he says we have to obey God because God is greater than man. We must submit ourselves to following God in all things. And so in that, every time we come up to a situation and we're tempted to disobey, you're not going to pay your taxes, you're not going to do some process, we have to render to Caesar what's Caesar's, we have to get back to the government what is theirs, and we have to obey God. But when it comes to the point of disobeying God so we don't get in trouble, we have to disobey. We have to disobey. Every human institution, look how he continues to spill this out. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. So in Peter's day, they had an emperor, and everything he said went. He said, jump, everybody collectively yelled, how high? How many times? And so he says, this guy who you don't agree with, who is working towards the persecution of you and of your family, you be subject to him. Why? Because God has placed him in this, according to Romans 13, and he is supreme. Now look at this. He has intrinsic uh, power and authority because of the position that he holds. But he's also sending people out, and he's, he's carrying his message to all these various five cities that these exiles find themselves living in. And so Peter writes, and he says, Or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so spilling down for the emperor, there were those who would go out into all these little uh, various cities, and, and they would look for people who were engaged in civic enterprise. They're engaged in being a part of these various cities. They're engaged in the political process. And these governors were to punish those variously who did uh, wrong and to award those or praise those who did well. And so we, we see this in the same fashion happening today. So if I go out and, and I find Chase on the street, I just begin to pummel him with my super tiny hands, and, and I'm engaged in this process, and Justin comes up, and he puts his clammy hands around Chase's throat, we should have an expectation to go to jail. We should have an expectation of being punished. If I don't pay my taxes, and, and they come in, and I look at that and say, oy vey, you know, Uncle Sam, that's a lot of money. I wish I could just pay you $5. And so I write in $5 here. Don't spend it all in one time. If you hadn't had these certain processes and, and enterprises and if people actually had to work and if you weren't so concerned with these things, then maybe it wouldn't be so much money. And so I gave you $5 because I think all this, all this is really what you really need. What's going to happen? And the IRS is going to show up and say, this is really cute, but where's the rest of your money? This is pretty special. We're just going to go ahead and hit you with some penalties and interest just to let you know we don't think this is nearly as funny as you did, right? And so they're going to punish those who do evil. The government, as you look at Romans 13, as you look here in 1 Peter, its primary design, according to God, is to keep us from slipping into anarchy. Keep us from slipping into anarchy. To punish those who do evil. But there's this flip side. 
that, that we don't really see as much in our day, but the government's also there to reward those who do good. And so in Peter's day, when he's writing and he's looking at this, uh, you would see that, that Jeff Gray would come up and Jeff would say, I want to bring an aqueduct to Greenville. And everybody says, this is great. We have awful water. You're going to bring good water. And this is wonderful. And so they go out and they build a statue to Jeff Gray. And so every day we walk by and we see the statue and say, so this is a noble citizen. This is somebody who did good for our community and we all have good water to drink because of it. Or maybe Rick Julian goes out and he says, look, I've been around some of the roads in Greenville and they're just awful. I mean, he was seven feet tall before he started driving in Greenville, but the impact made him five foot three. And so he goes out and, he, and so he gives a whole lot of money to the city and says, hey, look, I don't have to do this. I want to do this. I want to give this money to the city. And the city says, wow, this is a really good thing. So they build a statue to Rick Julian downtown on the square and he's doing this number, Right? <laughs> I don't know why you chose that as a pose, but okay. And so in our day within Greenville, we have the Worthy Citizen Award, right? Tom McAllister is one of the recipients of it. It started in the late 40s, and it recognizes those who are involved in society and doing well and pouring out themselves uh, to the betterment of the city. What it looks like for the Christian to be involved in the city is that every year they should have this list of all the Christians within Greenville, Texas, and say, you know, we really can't choose from any of them because they're all doing such a great job. This is what it looks like for us. We are living in this city, and, and, and our, our work in this city is to be about the good and its benefit, not because we want to make this a better place to live, but because we want to be obedient to God we are subject to the government for the Lord's sake, and our works and our endeavors in this city are for his sake as well. Amen? Amen. So we find ourselves, and what we should be doing as Christians is looking around and saying, what areas and avenues in our city can I get involved with? What after-school programs can I volunteer with? What, what nonprofits can I go work with? Uh, what areas do I see the city failing the citizens of Greenville, in what ways can I invest myself, my time, my resources, my heart? In what ways can I give myself to make this a better place? Why? Because you're submitting yourself to God. It's not that you want to make this a better place to live. It's not that you want to make this a place where the taxes are lower, and so you want richer people, you want industry moving here. If that is your end goal, then it's not a gospel goal. But if your end goal is to be found in submission to Jesus and to make his name great, then all those things can also find a home here in our community. It's a, it's a shifting of priority. It's a changing of order. We should find ourselves being subject for the Lord's sake. Now, Russ Moore has a great book called Onward. And in his book Onward, he's talking about the role of the Christian in cultural engagement. And I think it provides an especially good kind of clarion call for us as we're struggling to find, like, what is our identity? How will we do these things? And what should this look like? He writes, he says, if we ever were a moral majority, we are no longer. If we ever were a moral majority, we are no longer. As the secularizing and sexualizing revolutions were on, it is no longer possible to pretend that we represent the real America. A majority of God-loving, hard-working, salt-of-the-earth cultural conservatives like us. Accordingly, we will engage the culture less like the chaplains of some idyllic Mayberry and more like the apostles in the book of Acts. We will be speaking not to primarily to baptize pagans on someone's church's role, 
but to those who are hearing something new, maybe for the first time, we will hardly be normal, but we never should have tried to be. Jesus promised those who overcome a crown of life, but he never said anything about a God and country badge. Try, quit trying to make America to be the place that you think it should be. And start trying to be the person God has called you to be, Christian. Along the way, pouring out your efforts and finding yourself in submission to him, God may choose to do something outstanding and amazing here. That's his purview, not yours. That's up to him and not to you. But what he calls us to is submission to obedience and to hard work. Look what he goes on to say in verse 15. So he describes this, this process of finding ourselves in subjection for the Lord's sake. And then in verse 15 he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, unless you think that Peter's being especially insensitive to those who, who don't see, look back at chapter 1 and verse 14 in the book of 1 Peter, and you'll recognize that he referred to the recipients of his letters as foolish as well. Verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So everyone outside of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and his gospel is referred to as being foolish and ignorant. Until you come to know who Jesus is, you cannot be truly obedient to what he has called you to be. And this was true of us. This is true of every man, woman, and child in this place who says, I identify with Jesus. I have been forgiven my sins. He has forgiven me. I have been redeemed. Each and every one of us were formerly ignorant. Ignorant of God, ignorant of his ways, and we found ourselves not in submission to him. But this is what he says here. That in the process of doing good, read this, manifesting the gospel everywhere you go, this is the process, this, this is how this is working out. You are silencing ignorant and foolish people. And so as they see you living out the gospel, you're, you're finding their, they're finding their arguments to have no substance. Now this is effectively what he started in in chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12, he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Politics is an opportunity to live out the gospel. Politics is an opportunity to live out the gospel. It, when it comes to politics, it's not suddenly this place where you say, oh, i got to push the pause button on being a Christian because i got to get some business done. i got to get some things done. we got to see some real victories here. And once we see those victories brought in, then I'm going to go back and I'm going to be in church again. I'm going to be back and I'm going to be submissive to God again. I'm going to put the Jesus fish back in my car. But until that time, I'm taking it off and I'm putting either a never Trump, never Hillary, Trump or Hillary or Green Party or maybe writing in your own name and say, why not? You don't know me. You don't really know them. Why not? Politics is an opportunity for the Christians to boldly display the gospel. You don't have to watch Fox News or CNN or Nightly News or read the papers very long to recognize that civility left the room a long time ago. Amen? Civility left the room a long time ago. Christian, this is an amazing opportunity before you to display the gospel in an unexpected, in an unexpected time in an unexpected way. So when somebody brings up politics and there's just all this venom and all this rage, you're able to go places like Titus 2. 
Titus 3 and verse 2. Titus 3 and verse 2, Paul's writing them. And he begins in verse 1, he says, remind them. And then in verse 2, he says, to speak evil of no one. So before you open up your mouth to talk about the opposite party's, opposite party's candidate, remember this. Speak evil of no one. 75% of the stuff I read on your Facebook walls will come to a stop. 75% of the stuff, now that's an arbitrary number, but it's probably 76%. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. What does that sound like? Sound like, sound like anybody's weak? Anybody in here avoid quarreling? Anybody sick and in the hospital this week? Avoid quarreling. Speak evil of no one. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. If you submit everything that you're going to say, going to write, and going to communicate to Titus 3.2 from here through November, you're going to have an opportunity to display the gospel. Because I guarantee people are going to say, Oh, you must just be apathetic. You must just not care. This is when you have a chance to explain the gospel to them. Say, friend, I care deeply. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls me to treat every person with care and with love and with grace. And therein, friends, you're able to lay out the gospel. And so you see, recognize that I, I serve a God who created all of humanity. He created them in his image and in his likeness. And on the basis of his investment of love in humanity and creation, so too I extend love and I extend grace even to those I disagree with. And we have more opportunity to display love and grace to those we disagree with, much more than those we agree with who are just talking back to us. It's a difficult thing to be a Christian. Jesus never said it was easy, but we see a beautiful opportunity here to display the gospel and display it in a way that we rarely have. Live out the gospel. Now, some of us love the idea of freedom, and we just go nuts with it. So Peter addresses that in this next section. He says, live as people who are free. We need to live as people who are free. And primarily the freedom that he discusses in there is the freedom from sin and death. He's not talking about libertinism, or maybe you've heard it referred to as antinomianism, where you're no longer under the law until you live in perfect freedom. He's not describing you going out and doing whatever you want, all the way that you want to do it, any time, and, and manifesting your, your walk in any way, shape, or form. Now, Paul describes this in much greater detail in Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, and you can look that up later. We should be living as those who are free, recognizing that our freedom is found not in our Constitution, but our freedom is found in Jesus Christ, who has freed us from the effects of sin and death, and who has saved us to be slaves to righteousness for his sake. Amen? He addresses this. He is not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. This is what so many of us do. We use our freedom in Christ 
to actually become this, this blanket that covers us up. And so in the midst of these things, we're using our freedom. I'm free so I don't have to attend church. I'm free so I don't have to tithe. I'm free so I don't have to sing. I'm free so I don't have to stand. I'm free so I don't have to share the gospel. I'm free so I don't have to be nice to anybody because God has ultimately forgiven me for everything. I'm free. And then we substitute whatever it is that we don't want to deal with. For many of us, this political season, it'll be I'm free and so I'm not going to be subject. Or I'm free, so I'm not going to be kind. Or I'm free, so I'm not going to be civil. Or I'm free, so I'm just going to blast everybody in, in hopes that I can influence the, their choice come November. Your freedom is not an opportunity to live however the heck you want to. Your freedom was bought with a costly price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And your freedom is not an opportunity to live however you want to. He describes it like putting on a cloak and walking around and just kind of calling out. it. Nobody can figure out what's going on. Your freedom in Christ should be so beautifully displayed, so hidden behind the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would rather see yourself suffer than to see his good name besmirched. Don't allow your freedom to be licensed for sin. Don't allow your freedom to be licensed for sin. There's this great exchange here at the end. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up, but living as servants of God. If we would follow the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, how much would that impact? How much would that impact our community? If we look at the roughly 300 people who are in here this morning, if each of us chose to give two hours of our time to, to working towards the betterment, betterment of our community and then we move from our community somewhere else, we could throw 600 hours at doing good in Greenville. We begin to look at our, our um, financial contributions made by the members of this church in preparation for the presentation on May 22nd. And what we discovered is we have roughly 83 family units who gave $300 or less last year. So you start thinking about resources that you have. Two greatest resources you have are your time and your money when you think of just stuff you've got. Some of you, your personality is your greatest resource, but there's others of you that think that's true, and let's just not go there. <laughs> but think about what could happen if we mobilized everybody to where they were contributing 10%, which is what the Bible seems to give an indication would be true. And so we take these 83 who are giving next to nothing, and, and we, we encourage them to move in the direction of giving a full tithe. Let's say all these people make an average of just $10,000 a year. All of a sudden, we go from, from next to nothing to $83,000, or $2,000. Now we're at $166,000. It's amazing what can happen when people begin to be obedient. It's amazing what can happen when we begin to, to quit asking the question of how can I be served and we change it with how can I serve. Living out the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely about serving and absolutely nothing to do with being served. Can I tell you that, that God served you so well in the person of Jesus? He found you sinful he found you far off. He found you foolish and ignorant. He loved you. 
came close to you. He allowed himself to be put to death for you and nailed on a cross. And he bled and died for you. And he overcame sin and death for you. And he served you so well. And in salvation now, he calls you to move from the position of where you have been served by him. And now you live to serve for him. Amen? Peter's taking us through this amazing statement. Be subject to. And he just lines it out. And then he gets to the end of this section in verse 17. And he has this kind of catch-all of what's rendered in the ESV as four sentences. So he goes to the first one. He says, honor everyone. All of us have people that are easier to honor. Today is Mother's Day, and so uh, we try and honor mom. Valerie told me yesterday, she said, if you want to honor me, you can clean the house for me. So I'm battling. Is that really what she wants, or is she just saying? Who knows? He <laughs> says, honor everyone. He says, honor everyone. And so we find all these people. Some are easier to honor than others. Some presidents are easier to honor than others. And he comes to us, and he finds in the midst of this, this human predicament, and he says, honor everybody. Everyone you meet on the street. The homeless guy with a meth addict. Who's a meth addict? People you read about who are on the, the, the richest list, of the Fortune 500, they sit at the, the head of industry, and everyone in between. They're all worthy of your honor because they're made in the image and the likeness of God, one who created you and created them. He says, honor everyone. And then he, so he moves from the social, he moves to the ecclesial, to the church level, and he says, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Part of doing church with people is we, we don't find a church where we absolutely love and adore everyone there. It's good for us. We're not finding a church where everybody resonates and has the same ideas and, and hobbies that everybody else does. We find a church where, where this is iron sharpening iron. So we have really annoying people right beside really annoying people and they're, they're rubbing up against one another. But it's making us Holy. So, very real sense, he has called us to manifest what it is in the midst of this pursuit of holiness to love one another, love the brotherhood. That's what he calls us to. If you have a difficulty with another brother or sister in this place, scripture would tell you to go to them. To go to them. Don't go to somebody else. And so I'd go up to Davis and be like, Davis, have you ever met Ben Collins? Good night. What is wrong with that guy? And David's like, that's funny. Ben said the same thing about you. I'm like, but I'm his, I'm his pastor. Doesn't he understand he needs to submit? Scripture would have you go to that person and work that out. I love the brotherhood. It says, fear God. If you don't have a proper understanding of who God is, it doesn't matter whether it be political, social, interpersonal, or business relationship. Nothing will work for you the way it should. You have to start with a proper understanding of who God is. And when you understand who exactly he is that has created you and created all things, it engenders in you something so much stronger than reverential awe. God is all-powerful and could wipe us out without breaking his sweat. He's all-powerful and he looks and sees our sinful actions outwardly and our sinful hearts inwardly. This should create fear in us. Should create fear in us. We have to fear God when we recognize who He is. 
but yet somehow he loves us anyway through the blood of Jesus. And then lastly, he brings it back in writing to this group of first century Christians, and he says to them something that must be especially difficult to hear. See, he's moved them from honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, those people that they're going through and suffering alongside with, fearing God, and they say yes. And then he comes back and he says, you have to honor the emperor. We live a part of God's kingdom. Our citizenship rests in heaven, ultimately. But in the midst of that, our pursuit of fearing God has to be manifest, manifest, displayed by being subject to those people and powers and authorities that he has ultimately put in place. And our reflection and understanding of the gospel will be revealed therein. We have a tremendous opportunity to share the gospel this election season. Both in who you vote for, but most especially how you speak about those you disagree with as we head towards November. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful that you have allowed us to be born in a country where we have an opportunity to speak into the political process, but let us not see that as ownership. Let us not see that as a reason to be ugly or hateful. Father, I pray that we would be good stewards of those things you've entrusted to us. Time, our resources, our vote, our voice. And God, that all those things would be found to be in submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have saved us to serve you and to serve you well. Would you lead us in that pursuit? Would you guide us on that journey? And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you in salvation. They're good and upstanding, and, and some of us might look and say they vote for the right people at the right time, but they are far from you. God, I pray that you would lead them to confess their sins, to turn from their sinful ways, and to acknowledge your son Jesus who bled and died and rose again in their stead, who took the pain and the torment of sin and death for them. And who in his resurrection calls them to come to receive him, to receive him as Savior and Lord. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.